It's Monday, August 27th, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Yinchuan, China, in the Ningxia Wei Autonomous Region. Well, this is our weekly Monday Bible study and call to prayer. Today, we are continuing our study on the book Basic Christianity by John Stott. And today we will be looking specifically at chapter seven, talking about the sacrifice of Christ, that that Christ sacrificed his life. I love what Stott says in the first part of the book. He says the place the gospel holds out for us is where God's kindness and his severity meet. The cross is the intersection of God's love and justice. The beauty of the cross is found as we look at how Jesus willingly laid down his life so that we don't have to. He lived the life the law requires of us and died the death we deserved in order to once and for all satisfy the wrath of the law. You see, sacrifice is required for the transgression of the law. And there's three things we see from scripture on offerings and sacrifice and how Christ fulfilled them. First, it had to be a first fruits offering and it had to be costly. So the sacrifice of Christ at the cross had to be a first fruits offering and it had to be costly, right? So getting it all started, we look at Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 4, 1 through 7, uh, we see it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and he conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings. But for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, the first thing we see about the cross of Christ is it had to be a first fruits offering. It had to be costly, right? The sacrifice that was required after the fall of man, right? Cain and Abel and the scene that we see was after the fall of man. This is after sin has entered the world. After sin entered the world, the only way to be right by God was to make a sacrifice. But that was not just any sacrifice. As a matter of fact, you aren't sacrificing something that you don't want, that you don't need, or that is extra. No, you are making a sacrifice when it's costly, when it's the first thing you have, when it's the greatest thing that you have. And Cain gave, but Abel gave of the first fruits. That's what that's what Genesis chapter four says is that Abel gave from the firstborn of his flock. Right? God also gave us his absolute best. He came himself. He sacrificed his life. He was a first fruits offering. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, the author of Hebrews lets us know of the preeminence of Christ, writing to a Jewish audience to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah who came to sacrifice for our sins. The author of Hebrews even begins his epistles in in Hebrews chapter one, verses three through six, when he says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he, Jesus, sat at the right hand of the throne of God on the majesty of high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. You see, Christ was a first fruits offering. He gave his life as a first fruit. It was a sacrifice to God. It was the very best that God had to give. So we see that a sacrifice, right, had to be costly. It had to be a first fruits offering. But second, we see that sacrifices needed to be made by a representative of God. The sacrifice needed to be made by a priest, by a high priest. Bloody sacrifice was specific and exact measures to be taken annually in order to pay for the sins of the priest and the people. It had to be exact. The priest himself needed atonement. And this pointed to something. Something had to be better. Sin is deadly and it's a terminal disease. Leviticus prescribes what was supposed to happen in Leviticus 16 verses 11 through 19 where it says Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die and he shall take some of the blood of the bulls and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out as made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from all its uncleanliness of the people of Israel. Oh, beloved, look, there is such a bloody scene as not only is there a sacrifice made for the sins of the people, there's a sacrifice made for the priest. Why? Because the priest had to ultimately make the sacrifice for the people. Leviticus 16 goes on and it says that basically after he's done this, verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And it's the Sabbath, a day of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garment. So he's been made atonement for. Now he can make atonement for the people. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. It actually says that he's then to throw the blood on the people. How bloody was this? 
right? We needed a priest to make a sacrifice for our sins. There had to be a representative. When Jesus died, it was bloody, it was exact, and it was specific. Yet Jesus, our high priest, needed no atonement. He offers the sacrifice once and for all because he is the substitute and the salvation that we needed. He is what the old covenant pointed to. He is the antidote to the terminal disease of sin. The author of Hebrews explains again for his Jewish audience that Jesus as the Messiah was the perfect high priest and he sacrificed himself once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for the blood of both bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then the author of Hebrews goes on in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 9 when he says, thus it's necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, beloved, we needed a sacrifice because of our transgression of sin. It had to be a first fruits offering. It had to be made by the right representative. But third, the sacrifice had to be made life for life, blood for blood. Blood signifies a covenant. The first covenant of the law was sealed with blood. As a matter of fact, right after God had given Moses the, 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 12, uh, the, the 12 pillars and the 10 commandments and uh, the, for the 12 tribes of Israel, Moses actually comes down and he makes a burnt offering and he sacrificed a peace offering of oxen to the Lord. And, and he took half of the blood, he put it in the basins and, and he threw it against the altar and it exacted the covenant. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 24, verse eight, it says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. You see, blood was required for a covenant. A covenant was made perfect by the blood. Leviticus 17 tells us again, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in its blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat any blood. Any one also of the people of Israel with the strangers who sojourns among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. 
You see, the law required a sacrifice and a sacrifice of blood for the remission of sin. Paul tells the church at Ephesus that Jesus fulfills this requirement for our redemption. Ephesians chapter one, verses seven through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, Jesus in his last Passover celebration with his disciples gives them bread to signify the body and the grape to signify his blood, which he said would be poured out as a ransom. And all of this leads the author to Hebrews to say in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 16 through 22, for where there is a will, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will will take effect only at death since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, Oh, beloved, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission for sin. So in conclusion, the death of Christ did not surprise God the Father. It was his plan from the beginning to satisfy his holiness, which was trampled by the wickedness and sinfulness of man. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 uh, verses 5 through 10 when he said he is pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. By oppression in judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So he shall, so he shall be his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper. John in his epistle used the word propitiation or the Greek word hilamos to describe what the cross does for our sin. It signifies a means whereby sin is covered over and remitted because Jesus was able to pay for all our sins in full. God's holiness is satisfied. Jesus is our mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins, the full payment, which is sufficient for all time. John says in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So finally, the cross is the only way we enter into the rest in the kingdom of God. This is the plan set out for the Father on the heels of the very first sin. See, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God made a way for the people to get back 
This is what Genesis 3, 14 through 15 says, the very first prophecy foretelling Christ. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, behold, you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now listen to this. And this is what the author of Genesis says. It says, he shall bruise your head. This is what he's saying to the serpent. He, this, this savior to come will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, you bruise a snake's head, you destroy it. A snake bruises your heel, but it's not a knockout for you. The foreshadowing from the Lord at the beginning was that the woman's offspring, Jesus, would be wounded, but not destroyed. Oh, and then as we see in Genesis chapter three, verses 22 to 24, as Jesus, or as God is, is throwing Adam and Eve out of the garden, he places something between man and the garden. This is what the word of God says. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, at least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and the rest eat at the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Then we see that a cherubim and a flaming sword guard the entrance of the garden. The only way to get past those is to be God. The only way to get past the flaming sword, the only way to get past the cherubim is to be God. God would have to rescue us himself. And he does that in the person of Christ. And so Revelation 5 beautiful, beautiful passage tells us this is the way to be rescued. When, when John the Revelator sees this mighty scene in heaven, he says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then he began to weep loudly because no one was found. Then one of the elders says, verse five, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And for by your blood, you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation and people. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You cannot be sinful and get near God. It doesn't work. God's holiness will incinerate you. God essentially says, no one can come near me without blood. Somebody's got to pay for all of mankind's belittling my name. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, the sacrificial system. Jesus had to die to make a way for us. Beloved, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And every man, boy, woman, girl needs to hear this truth. And this is our mission to spread the fragrant knowledge and glory of our father who came to be our ransom. And this is how Stott finishes up this chapter. The message of the cross remains in our day as in Paul's foolishness to the wise and a stumbling block to the self-righteous, but it has brought peace to the conscience of millions. There is healing through the wounds of Christ, life through his death, pardon through his pain, and salvation through his suffering.
So this week, we are praying for the country of Liberia. We're specifically praying for the government of Liberia, that people will take a stand against corruption and that peace would prevail. We're praying for the church in Liberia, that churches would have purity of doctrine and that godly leaders would would be raised up and would teach the right theology. We're praying for the ministry of REAP, our partner that has trained and equipped older orphans with life skills and job skills. Pray for REAP's director, Christine Norman, who is uh, struggling with her health and is currently undergoing treatment for cancer. Uh, Thank the Lord for our life skills training program for the kids who will attend these camps this fall. Pray for the local church who would also play a role in discipling these young men and women after camp is over. Pray for the partnership we have with Destiny Newen and who helps at the camps and who has also started an orphanage director network to encourage, equip, and share the gospel with orphanage networks around Liberia. And praise for the partnership with the Church at Brook Hills has formed through Lifeline and how their members care, oh, so passionately for the people of Liberia. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for the people in the nation of Liberia. We pray for her government. We pray for her churches and we pray for her leaders. We pray that she would have a purity of doctrine, that the churches would teach true gospel, a gospel of repentance, a gospel of suffering, uh, a gospel of even what we've looked at today, a God that is willing to make a sacrifice. Lord, we pray for Christine Norman and her health and pray that you would restore her health. We pray for Reap, our partner, and we thank you for them. And Lord, we pray that you would prepare the team that will go in November and for the life skills camp that will take place in November. And we're thankful for all the things that you were doing in Liberia for your name and for your glory. Well, thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again tomorrow for the Defender Podcast.